Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. Longtime listeners might recall that early on we promised that while at some point we need to bring on advertisers just to keep the show going, that we'd never promote anything we didn't feel really good about. And because of this, there actually were a few earlier opportunities that we had to turn down. Now, but today, we're happy to say that we're sponsored by Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the United States. Blue Apron makes it possible for anyone to cook great meals with fresh ingredients. And these meals don't only taste great, they work to support a sustainable food system. That's a particularly big deal for me because my wife, Kimberly, who's also a political scientist, is really passionate about sustainability. She even teaches an entire class on it. And she's, so she's made me a pretty big sustainability advocate, too. Uh, Jay, I don't know. Have you checked out their latest meal options? I have. I have. And it's, it's great. And also, I want to say from my standpoint, as uh, someone with three kids uh, who are always going places, uh, it's, it's great as far as convenience goes. Uh, having everything ready to go, not trying, having to figure out what's for dinner, what are we going to cook? It's all there. Uh, you put it together and it's, it's a great, uh, thing for the family to do together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there's great stuff, not just for me, I noticed, but for Kimberly who doesn't eat meat, you know, that's another thing I really like. If you don't eat say beef or pork, which I don't, or even if you're completely non-meat, which Kimberly is, you know, they've got you covered and you get to choose from a variety of new recipes each week. Uh, I noticed Parmesan crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli, Baby broccoli and fontina paninis with hard-boiled egg and arugula salad. I mean, we're, we're not talking TV dinners here. This is great stuff, and it's less than $10 per person per meal. Plus, the ingredients are pre-portioned, and meals can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Now, if you check, if you check out this week's menu, you get your first three meals free with free shipping just by going to blueapron.com slash TPG. The TPG part is important because number one, that's how you get your free meals and free shipping. And also it lets them know that you're coming from us. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash TPG. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, on to our first story today. In a, gosh, in an incredibly jam-packed week. You know, it, was let, a, it was a crazy week, wasn't it? It really, really was. And I think we should begin with the U.S. missile strike in Syria carried out in response to the Syrian government's chemical weapons attack earlier in the week, an attack that killed more than 80 civilians. Now, the strike was intended both to degrade the Syrian government's ability to carry out further chemical attacks and to send a message to President Assad that chemical ta- attacks would not be tolerated. And of course, Russia, which is Syria's main a- ally, denounced the U.S. missile strike and said it deals a significant blow to relations between Russia and America, which are already in a poor state, to say the least. President Trump's action represents a significant departure both from his previous position on military intervention against the Assad government, as well as the Obama administration's decision to not authorize a missile strike in response to an even more deadly Syrian chemical weapons attack in 2013. So, Jay, I guess to start, do you think President Trump did the right thing here? Uh, Absolutely. I I do think he did the right thing. 
and and I think um, you know he got a lot of support from uh, all sides, uh, from Democrats uh, and from the press even, uh, for for taking this action. Uh, so so no, this was I, I mean I have to say so far of the uh, uh, the Trump presidency, this was his best week ever, and for other reasons we're going to get into. Um, but uh, I, I this is this is something that you know regardless of of uh, you know a lot of folks who elected Trump obviously. Uh, have been called sort of the isolationist America first crowd. Uh, and there's something to to that. But at the same time, I think those folks uh, or, or most Americans still want the the uh, the idea of of an America that that is a world leader. And I think that's that's what we did, and that's what we haven't been doing. Uh, for quite a while and and setting here's a condition and uh, you broke it and now you're going to pay a price. Uh, so I, I think it does a lot to uh, restore uh, American foreign policy credibility. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to agree with you on the decision. Uh, and, you know, in the past, of course, we talked about our both of our, our joint disappointment with then President Obama's failure to act more decisively. My concern is that, uh, you know, what does this mean going forward? We've seen that President Trump can be at least seemingly somewhat erratic, to say the least. And my concern is that he tends to be swayed too easily by what he feels in his gut and so forth. And, and you know, certainly you could make the argument that maybe President Obama and his team were a little bit too analytical and overthought things a bit too much. And, and I think, you know, reasonable people could make a good argument along those lines. But also... I certainly don't want our foreign policy to be driven by whatever disturbing images President Trump happens to see on Fox that day. Yeah, no, I, I get that with the he because he did reference, um, you know, the, that he was moved as a father and a grandfather seeing these these images of of, of children who had who had been gassed. Um, but but I think there's more to it than that. And in that. This is, first of all, it is it is horrific, and part of the reason that we do take steps uh, on this kind of thing with chemical weapons is because of the the horrific nature of chemical weapons, uh, but also because um, there there was a an agreement here uh, that was supposed to have been they were supposed to have gotten rid of all of their chemical weapons. That's what uh, uh, you know the Russians were going to hold on to them for them, uh, and and so. So, I mean, even regardless of, of the imagery, and I know others have said that, that, you know, if, if it wasn't, uh, if we didn't have these, uh, these, these really, you know, horrific scenes, uh, would we still have done something? Uh, my, you know, I guess we don't know, but I, I would have to think I'd, I'd hope so. Um, uh, because it's, it's still a matter of standing up for what the international order is in terms of, of allowing states to to use chemical weapons against their own people. Um, and also the agreement that we were supposed to have uh, where all these chemical weapons were destroyed or gotten rid of. Yeah, you know, it, I mean, this is a region of the world, obviously, where there are a lot of competing forces and things are incredibly complex. If, if President Trump thought healthcare policy was complex, uh, boy, uh, much more so. And I think it's a challenge for anyone to try to find some sort of a consistent policy as opposed to just sort of responding to whatever crisis comes up at the moment. I mean, that's been a struggle of American foreign policy for generations. Uh, yeah. and, and I certainly hope for, for everyone's sake that maybe President Trump and his team can find a new way of looking at it that is, you know, that works out to the betterment of almost all parties concerned. Uh, it's a pretty big job. And of course, we're not going to know until we, you know, kind of see going forward. But I, I certainly hope so. 
Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, there have been some other statements uh, from uh, U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, um, who was really strong uh, in her condemnation of Syria and uh, of the Russians, uh, indicating that the Russians uh, are either uh, grossly incompetent at finding and getting rid of these chemical weapons or they're complicit in it. Maybe both. Uh, most likely the latter. Um and and sort of indicating it, and uh, Obama or uh, President Trump had, had um, made some statements indicating that uh, you know regime change may be uh, our next policy. Now they've stopped short of saying that, uh, and I think Secretary of State Tillerson uh, made comments to the extent that uh, the fate of Bashar Assad is is uh, in the hands of the Syrian people. Uh, but there seems to definitely be a, a turn, a pivot, uh, if you will, uh, that that says, listen, we're, we're no longer comfortable and we don't see, I guess, an end game with Bashar Assad still in power. And that's, that is sort of a collision course with, uh, with the Russians. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think the reason why the Obama administration decided not to launch any sort of attack is because they, they, you know, calculated and talked to their experts and, and, be, and believed that, uh, you know, 59 Tomahawk missiles wouldn't do the job and that if they really wanted to commit, they were going to have to, you know, kind of go big or go home. And they decided not to get involved in the first place. And it, I, I, I don't think that that strategic calculus was necessarily wrong. Anyone who thinks that, you know, missiles are going to do the job, I think is, is sadly mistaken. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I certainly don't. I mean, I'm going to use the word quagmire here. I certainly hope that uh, President Trump doesn't get involved in one of those quagmires. We all, everyone wants to avoid quagmires. Yeah, no one likes a quagmire. Uh, but, uh, you know, let's, let's wait and see what else, what else uh, we've got as far as capabilities uh, to degrade the Syrians. So. Definitely. You know, there was just tons of foreign policy news this week, of course. Uh, there was, I think, most notably, at least until the Syrians, uh, uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit to the weekend White House at Mar-a-Lago there in, in Florida. <laughs> uh, we'll get to that later on in the show. But before that, of course, there was President Trump's visit with Egypt's authoritarian President al-Sisi, who took power in a military coup in 2013. And, you know, ever since that coup, relations with Egypt have soured, uh, a state of affairs that President Trump seems to want to reverse because he didn't only welcome, you know, him, I'll see, see, he, he actually praised him saying, I just want to say to you, Mr. President, you have a great friend and ally in the United States and me. And then in a later interview with Fox Business Network, President Trump approvingly noted he took control of Egypt and he really took control of it. Um, and, and <laughs> That control President Trump is talking about has included gunning down protesters, filling prisons with political opponents, and almost completely muzzling the press. I mean, this is a seriously bad guy. Uh, so uh, how do you feel about President Trump's uh, kinder and gentler approach to Egypt's president? Well, you know, for for all that Trump is, is criticized for having a lack of uh, diplomacy, um, I, look, this is, this is diplomacy. Uh, Egypt has long been a strategic ally partner of the United States. And it has, it, for the most part, uh, throughout that time, been run by some pretty uh, crummy people. Sure. Uh, uh, General uh, Nasser uh, uh, Sadat, who uh, I guess became more of a, a peacemaker, became more uh, well-liked, uh, but was still sort of authoritarian in, in his, to his own folks. Um, that's that's the, the the folks that we deal with. And if you're talking about uh, real politic and um, looking at the world the way it is rather than the way you might like it to be, um, that is the, the 
the government that we have to well, deal yeah. with uh, and, in Egypt. Yeah, and I agree with you there, but I'm talking about the tone. You don't you, you deal with people you have to deal with sometimes, but you don't embrace them and say, "Oh, what a great guy." No, I, you know, there, there's, there are ways to do these things where you don't legitimize these regimes any more than you have to. And President Trump, I think, could have just as easily done what I believe is the correct thing and certainly talked with him, but not, not sort of openly, you know, pr pretty much openly embraced this guy. I think that was a, a, a bad move, uh, yet another foreign policy misstep in, in, uh, in a long series of foreign policy missteps. Well, well, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Um, I think you might be reading too much into his his uh, approval and uh, uh, his uh, what's let's, let's call it courtesy uh, to okay. LCC. Um, Maybe he was over caffeinated uh, or something. I don't know. But, you know, I will say there is one positive foreign policy. Well, another for positive foreign policy note this week. Uh, it was announced that uh, nationalist provocateur Steve Bannon would no longer be sitting on the National Security Council's Principles Committee, which, you know, is a move that I think was generally seen as a demotion for Bannon, who a lot of people seem to think might be losing influence with the president after that whole aggressive take no prisoners advice on the travel ban and on health care. Mm -hmm resulted in two embarrassing failures for the administration. And to me, it looks like NSC Director H.R. McMaster, who was widely praised as a big upgrade over loose cannon Mike Flynn, is taking control of the NSC, which I think probably has a lot of people relieved. So yeah, are you and, relieved, and, and McMaster has also restored the, uh, the permanent membership of the other uh, yeah. heads of the other intelligence Good agencies um, who, had, who had been sort of, uh, you know, not not – taken out of the NSC, but, uh, but they weren't sort of regular uh, yeah, attendees. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I think again, this is something that, uh, now that the Trump administration, I think, uh, the, the, the line that uh, they came back with was, was really pretty hilarious that, uh, really the reason they wanted Bannon on well, two, two, there were, there were two reasons given one, uh, that they have de-operationalized uh, the NSC. That was uh, Bannon's term, uh, making it, it now non-political. Uh, yeah. That that he needed to be in there to, to depoliticize it, which which as as we'll talk about other things may may be sort of the case. Um, but um, the other the other uh, rationale that came out was well we wanted we needed Bannon on the NSC to keep an eye on Mike Flynn. Exactly. Um, which seems to be sort of self-defeating if they like. Uh, you know, we gotta, we have to appoint this crazy guy, uh, to keep an eye on the other crazy guy that we appointed. Yeah. Um, that's, that's not a great, that's not a great answer. But uh, I, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, the national security council was sort of back to where it was and, and had been and people hoped for. So, uh, I, I, I feel that, that this is a, a good move. And I think that's generally the, uh, the feeling of, across the country and, and amongst the uh, the foreign policy and the, the intelligence experts. Agreed. You know, the foreign policy is, is a serious business and many lives are at stake on a regular basis. And I can only hope that President Trump is starting to realize uh, even more the seriousness of that and, and is, you know, putting people in charge and listening more to, to serious people who have decades of experience in the field. So we will see. Yeah, and the other, the other thing that's, that's popping up and this is the rumor mill type thing. And, and I almost hate to, to indulge in it because one, everything that, that you and I are getting about this is secondhand, thirdhand, uh, pretty much just what we read in the paper. Uh, but that the, the, the struggle seems to be, um, 
between uh, uh, Trump's son-in-law uh, Kushner uh, and Steve Bannon, uh, that there is a, a conflict between them uh, in terms of ideology. Uh, Kushner, who is, I, I'm not sure if he's officially a Democrat, but is, is certainly seen as, as more, more moderate. moderate. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's not simply a uh, folks jockeying for power within an administration. It's an actual, a real, or, or, or a split over tactics. Uh, it's it's an ideological uh, split, and the again the rumor mill is is that uh, Reince Priebus has has sort of brokered uh, a truce uh, so that everyone can keep moving forward, and we'll we'll see how that uh, if if that's true. And again, uh, all, all we know is what we pick up on this kind of thing. Thirty, we don't have sources inside the White House uh, yet, Not yet. <laughs> but uh, I think it's it's fascinating to. To watch this unfold at the same time, we see these these other foreign policy steps taking place. Yeah, definitely. You know, let's turn to domestic policy for a little bit. The Supreme Court, where what everyone predicted would happen, happened, right? Uh, yep. uh, Judge Gorsuch now will, will now be uh, Justice Gorsuch, uh, you know, after the Democrats staged a filibuster to halt his elevation to the Supreme Court. Republicans did, in fact, change the Senate rules to eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. And that party line vote to uh, defilibuster, I guess, follows a similar move by Democrats in 2013, in which they changed the rules to eliminate filibusters for all non-Supreme Court presidential nominees. And then, of course, Gorsuch was confirmed in another largely party line vote with a few Democrats voting. Two two Democrats. It was three three. Democrats. Yeah. And, you know, senators from both parties said that now the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees is gone. We're likely to see even more extreme judges appointed to the court, something both sides say they regret. And so, Jay, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this, particularly what a Supreme Court with Neil Gorsuch is likely to be like and what, if any, longer term ramifications you think there might be for the elimination of the Supreme Court uh, filibuster. Well, I think a Supreme Court with Neil Gorsuch is going to be a lot like the Supreme Court you had uh, uh, before Neil Gorsuch with uh, with Justice Scalia. Uh, the addition of of uh, him, I don't think, does much to change the ideological balance. It sort of puts it back to the status quo where it's where it's been uh, for more or less, I'd say, the, you know, the last 20 years or so. Um, I, I think uh, Gorsuch is a a again the the writing the the intellectual firepower he is he is a worthy sort of heir to, to Scalia's seat. Um, is is he extreme? I mean it, it's it's sort of weird if you think about this that no one talked about this issue of of our judges uh, extreme or or uh, I don't even know what else, what else to what else you would call it uh, you know too ideological. Uh, until 1987 um, with uh, Judge Robert Bork. Uh, and that was the first time when the Supreme Court, I, I shouldn't say the first time because obviously there were there were times back before that, but the first time in, in modern era, the Supreme Court became really uh, political, politicized uh, to the extent that if you had someone uh, who was, you know, obviously qualified, no one doubted his qualifications, but was knocked out purely based on on ideology, and it's sort of you know ever since then, um, we've we've seen this sort of unraveling. Um, uh, so I, I don't I don't know whether the court is becoming it'll make the court more ideological than it already is. I I tend to think it'll not much will happen um, if if you if you, again if you look at history, regardless of of what filibuster rule you had in place, and again that has changed. 
uh, numerous times um, uh, throughout the last couple decades. Um, the presidents typically get the appointees that they want. Um, so I, I don't think that uh, this changes it. I think it's it's unfortunate in that um, now that there's there's always going to be sort of a, a partisan attack uh, on jurists who are uh, uh, you know good, well-meaning, uh, well-qualified, uh, super smart people, uh, and and that sort of lowers sometimes public confidence in the court. Um, but I, I don't think it it really changes the makeup of the court. Yeah, I, I agree entirely, uh, pretty much entirely with everything you said, I think, there, Jay. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, a lot of listeners, uh, luckily, I guess, are, are not as old as we are. And so, I mean, both you and I can remember an era where Supreme Court nominees were confirmed practically unanimously. I mean, it, it's it's something that that's a, that's a thing of the past. It's like rotary telephones at this point. It's well, even even if you look back at uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think received something like ninety three votes in the Senate. Was it that many? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I I gosh, I had a chart. The Wall Street Journal had a a piece on this of of justices going back through like uh, Kennedy and what the votes were. Um, uh, Clarence Thomas was was more of a squeaker than uh, mm-hmm. what uh, uh, Gorsuch was, um, but. Um, you know, part of it, I think, also sometimes just depends on the the political bounce uh, that's uh, that's out there in, in terms of, uh, for example, the the Ginsburg seat. I mean, it was a matter of a, a no net loss, no net pickup. Um, uh, so it, likewise with the with the Scalia seat, though, it, it seemed bigger because he was such a a big figure. Um, well, yeah, I don't and, know. And, and, and again, to me, I, I think the Democrats got it wrong. I think they should have. Uh, they should have played along and uh, uh, nominated Gorsuch, and then uh, you know save this this fight for the next nominee. Sure. Well, um, they're basically but they got to do what they got to yeah, do. So exactly. So it's uh, I mean both parties are right in the sense it's a sad state of affairs, and both parties bear a certain amount of responsibility for it, and it is what it is. Unfortunately, going forward. Right. I would like to add though, I don't think that the um, getting rid of the filibuster rule as it as it existed. Is any sort of affront to uh, democracy or or how the Senate works? Right. Um, Agreed. If you look back historically, the filibuster, as we we perceive it in popular culture, had been sort of dead for probably like fifty years or so. Um, the idea that you know someone gets up and just you got to keep talking and keep talking, and it's Jimmy Stewart uh, uh, and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, and um, that's not really what what would happen under the other filibuster rules because nobody really did that because who wanted to hear all that? So it was sort of a uh, I don't want to say a, a fake filibuster that we had, uh, but but it was a uh, you didn't the people didn't have to stand up and, and talk forever. Now some did just for the the showmanship of it. Uh, Rand Paul I think most recently uh, a couple years back, but. Uh, you know, the, the filibuster as we perceive it wasn't really what we thought it was or, or what, how it actually worked. Um, and, and again, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's okay. I think to have things settled by a majority vote. Um, well, you know, they're the Senate's rules and the Senate can put in whatever rules it wants. And there's still, we should, we should point out there's still a filibuster for legislation. And I don't, I, I don't expect that that's going any, any way going anywhere anytime soon though who knows but i think i think that one's going to stick around for a little while longer so all right well before we move on we'd like to thank our new supporters this week 
Our first new supporter this week is a generous contributor through PayPal who asked to remain anonymous, but we will thank you very much for your support. It is much An- appreciated. Another anonymous supporter. You know, yeah, it's become kind of a thing. <laughs> People don't want to associate their name like, wait, look, hey. It's it kind of odd <laughs> sort of, yeah, exactly. As I, I know, but, uh, but anyway. Plausible, deni- plausible deniability. Yes, there you go. Thank you very much. And next we have Jim, originally from Lebanon, but now living in New York City. Jim writes, I just want to thank the both of you for cutting through the mire of political news I'd normally have to dig through to understand what goes on. I wish there was something similar for the Middle East, too. Thank you, Jim. We really appreciate Thanks, it. You know, if you're interested in supporting the show financially, you can do what Jim and our anonymous benefactor did last week. Just go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal donation links you'll see there. And every donation, no matter what the size, really does help. And of course, we really appreciate those regular monthly donations through pay, through sorry through Patreon. They're they're very helpful in terms of helping us for planning purpose and so forth. And finally, as always, it would be a big help if you could spread the word about the show by following us, sharing and retweeting our new show posts and other posts on Facebook and Twitter. All right, moving on. It was another big week in the ongoing investigations of possible Trump campaign collusion with Russia in the 2016 presidential election. First, we found that and the, and investigation I, of whether or not uh, there was improper Obama I'm, I'm, uh, surveillance. I'm getting yeah okay I'm Just getting to, that, okay, okay 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 yeah you're right you're right fair enough. Now first we found out that Obama National Security Advisor Susan Rice unmasked the names of several Trump associates incidentally caught up in legal wiretapping of non-U.S. citizens. Now Rice as well as national security experts from both sides really point out that such unmasking does not mean leaking and that it isn't either illegal or really all that surprising. They say that unmasking is sometimes necessary for top advisors to understand the context of information gained through wiretapping. But many Republicans, including President Trump, see it differently, saying that Rice may have broken the law, though that wild claim by the president seems to be baseless, or more plausibly, that Rice may have unmasked the names to gain partisan political advantage for Democrats. Now, the fact that the official was Rice, who many conservatives believe was part of a cover-up involving the Benghazi embassy attack in 2012, that really wound up conservative media this week. So, Jay, what do you make of all this? Well, I think, first of all, I think it's it's fascinating that uh, we're, we're starting to learn stuff. We're starting to get actual facts about uh, what happened uh, when. And, and now we know that, yes, Susan Rice was the person who un- unmasked uh, these, these Trump associates. Now, we don't know a whole lot more than that. Um, but from what I understand, it's, it's unusual that the unmasking would be done by uh, the most senior uh, level person uh, of, of uh, an administration. This would typically be something done uh, down the line so that the more senior people could get context and understand. Uh, and, and we haven't really heard what the justification for the unmasking uh, was, uh, other than um, we're not know, likely again, to score, even score even some, some political points. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the the other thing that's interesting again, I, I, I there's no evidence at this point that uh, Susan Rice was the leaker. Now, again, unmask as you said, unmasking and leaking are, are two different things. Uh, they may well have been done by the same person or the same group of people, um, but we don't know that yet. Uh, what what we do know is is in all of this, we know that there's been one crime committed, and that was leaking uh, of the, uh, the the intelligence uh, transcripts re- regarding uh, Michael Flynn, um, and somebody did that, and I think we're we're moving closer to 
to finding out who that's that's that is and and why they did it. So, um, yeah, I, I, my my point on these is always we don't know what we don't know yet. Uh, so let's let's stay tuned. So absolutely, I mean, there's going to be more to come out, and I'm I'm sure that uh, well, certainly Republicans want Susan Rice to to testify. She's been sort of at the the center of their dartboard for a number of years now, and the fact, like I said, the fact that it was her just made it well. It's all the worst. It's not. It's not that she's just they put her on the dartboard. She sort of. She made um, some statements in the aftermath of the Benghazi she's out there, attack. Yeah, yeah and, and, sure. and also, I mean, in, in Susan Rice's defense, uh, uh, I understand that. Look, a lot of times, uh, what you have to do is uh, you're out there to fall on your sword for for your boss, sure. uh, and and uh, there's a certain nobility sometimes in doing and, that, and yeah. and maybe that's just the role she's been called upon to play. The Oliver um, North of her but, time, but she is she's been the person who has been out there. Uh, front and center on a lot of these uh, these issues. So, but and you know, th- this is such an almost unprecedented thing. The fact that we're talking about an investigation of a major party's presidential campaign, I mean, and so it's it's almost hard to conduct this in a way that's not that doesn't at least seem political. I mean, it would take it would take sages to do that, you know. And so when we're dealing with these investigations being and this information coming out and being seen by people who are both you know, legitimately concerned about national security, but who also are on both sides partisans. It just, it's such a mess, essentially. And this isn't surprising given, given the nature of this. So, you know, in other big investigation news, House Intelligence Committee Chair Devin Nunes has announced that he's recusing himself from his committee's Russia investigation an announcement that came after the House Ethics Committee announced that Nunes was the subject of an investigation himself concerning unauthorized leaking, speaking of leaking, of classified information. And, you know, while President Trump has repeatedly called for the investigation to focus on the leakers, I somehow don't think this is what he had in mind. Um, Jay, what did you think about this particular development? Well, I think it's I think it was a shame that uh, Nunez stepped down because I don't think he I don't think he had. No, I shouldn't say stepped down, stepped away from from this investigation because I don't think he really had to. Uh, this was, you know, complaints filed by uh, some some left wing uh, progressive groups uh, who are using it. And we talked about these, you know, health ethics uh, processes. Um, well, probably back, what, beginning of the year yep. uh, and how they, they could be abused and what what happens. Somebody says, uh, here's a complaint and I want this investigated. And, uh, then there's an investigation and well, they don't re- just regardless of, of where you are on that, I mean, you, you're, you know, you're always labeled the person under investigation. Um, you know, so I, I don't, uh, I don't think he had to, but if, and I think if by doing this, you just encourage more of the, um, more of this sort of thing of, of, uh, sort of music using this now, I, I don't think there there's going to be an ethics violation on this as because as best as I can tell and as, as uh, you know, the information that Nunez released, I, I don't see anything that was classified confidential in that. Now, again, I, I, I don't know because I, I'm, you know, don't know all the, the classifications of everything that he looked at or said, but um, his statements were, were pretty careful and pretty, uh, uh, obtruse, I think, as far as, uh, you know, any, any, um, specific sources or, or so forth. So, well, well, look, to me, it's sort of a pattern of behavior. And I understand the point you're making, but, but right off, I think you could make a good case as a number of people in Congress did that this maybe wasn't something that should be handled through the, the normal process, given the nature of it. But given the fact that 
that he was a member of the transition team for President Trump, an early and vocal supporter of President Trump. And uh, then that whole thing where he went around the the Democratic members of the committee and made this, you know, special announcement all by himself. And, you know, there's just there are too many things that even if even if there's no ethics violations here, just given the nature of what's going on, I think it was the right thing and the wise thing for him to step aside. And I'm glad he did. And maybe it'll make the House investigation a little less of a joke. I hope so. Well, I, I agree. It, it probably lends credibility to the uh, the, the ongoing investigation. Uh, but I also will predict that uh, within a couple of weeks, as soon as uh, these folks, uh, the the successors to Devin Nunez, uh, you know, start start getting more information like who the leaker is, like uh, more information about Susan Rice after she's called to testify. Uh, I'm I'm betting you'll see ethics charges uh, filed against them also. Jay, I'll take that uh, bet. I'll take that bet because it's not going to okay. happen. So we will see. But I, I think you and I disagree a little bit about the. Uh, 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 what it takes to get uh, the House Ethics Committee to to act. I don't think they would act unless there is at least some sort of basis. I know we differ a little bit on that, but I don't think there are going to be ethics charges. But uh, we we will see which one of us is right on this one. Yes, Nunez Nunez will be will be exonerated, uh, and uh, the the next uh, wave of um, uh, uh, chair chair people uh, investigation leaders. I'm not sure what you call them because they aren't with it, the chairman. Uh, will be uh, will be accused. Okay, well, we will see. I'm betting it won't yep. happen, but we will see. All right, you know, it tells you what kind of just a crazy week it's been when a visit to the United States from the president of China is this far down in terms of the stories we cover. Our last story. You know, yeah. yeah, I mean, President Trump, who during the campaign accused the Chinese of illegally dumping goods in U.S. markets as well as manipulating its currency. In fact, he said that one of the, the first thing he would do as president was to uh, formally accuse China of being a currency manipulator, which didn't happen. But anyway, he promised to come down hard on the Chinese, uh, though, again, that radical proposal of denouncing them, declaring them a currency manipulator, which they aren't, and imposing a 45% tariff on Chinese goods. Thankfully, those things have remained campaign rhetoric. But, you know, during the talks, Trump and President Xi Jinping discussed the U.S.-China trade imbalance, which is a pretty big deal, as well as the growing threat of North Korea, which continues to, you know, launch those ballistic missiles. And one of the one of these days, they're going to, you know, they keep on getting slightly better at it. So, you know, one thing, though, they didn't discuss was the environment, which had been a major focus of talks with with China in the Obama administration. And not a whole lot really came out of this meeting. I don't think a lot was expected, aside from a Chinese proposal for a 100-day a plan to correct the trade imbalance. Uh, so, Jay, what did you think about the meeting? Uh, look, I think um, Trump is you know, he's, he's doing sort of what we, we thought he would. I mean, take him seriously, but not literally. Um, in that he's, he's going to talk to the Chinese. He's going to push hard on, uh, working to change the trade imbalance, but he's not going to impose, uh, the sort of, uh, drastic sanctions that he was talking about. Uh, and he's going to be a little bit more diplomatic when it comes to, uh, you know, again, declaring them a currency manipulator and so forth. Um, you know, the other big, big piece of this, I think, uh, overshadowing a lot of the trade stuff was this uh, Syria uh, 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 missile launch and, um, you know, what what could well happen in uh, North Korea. 
uh, we have we have sent the message uh, through Secretary of State Tillerson uh, to the Chinese that if if you don't do something about North Korea, we will. Uh, and I think this the Syria uh, uh, attack uh, showed uh, we are willing to uh, Trump. The United States is willing to to act unilaterally uh, and take steps when it needs to and has those the capability to, to do so. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that hopefully went uh, made an impression on uh, on the Chinese leader. Um, we'll we'll see. But um you know, this was this was a a big a big week for for Donald Trump in showing that he is sort of a serious leader on 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 the world stage. Well, uh, I, I would and, uh, I would say that maybe not a serious leader on the world stage, but that he can act decisively, which is something that I never doubted. Uh, the question to me is, can he act uh, consistently and prudently and rationally? And that remains to be seen. Um, you know, on China, I, certainly at one point, China was. A currency manipulator, though that they're not anymore. They kind of corrected that themselves. Uh, well, it's, it's more. It's more like I think they they tried, but it it just really wasn't working for them. But so they're not doing it anymore, right? Probably yeah. the best way to put it. Yeah. Okay. And but also, I think there there is something to be said for taking a look at some of the things that China does, and they do a lot of things to make it much more difficult for U.S. companies to sell goods in, in China. I don't think anyone really doubts that. I think there is room for, uh, you know, to, for some agreements on that. And also their horrible, their horrible record on intellectual property rights and so forth. I don't, I don't hold out much hope of human rights type stuff. But uh, I think in those areas, maybe we can, we can do something. Maybe they can make some kind of a deal. North Korea, that's a lot trickier. It's one thing to launch a bunch of missiles at Syria, but North Korea, you know, is is, is a nuclear power. Uh, they're incredibly unstable. Uh, you know, that's that's a. I, I mean, I agree with you in the sense that it did send a message that we're willing to act unilaterally. But I don't I don't see us acting unilaterally in terms of North Korea. It seems like the administration doesn't want to talk, but I, I don't know exactly what the plan is with North Korea. It's it's a tough problem for sure. Well, and and I, I wouldn't necessarily expect them to share the plan with us. No, of course not. Uh, it's but. a select <laughs> Just like Nixon had a secret plan to end the war in Vietnam, maybe Trump has a secret plan to somehow denuclearize North Korea, though I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, this is a this is a wicked tough problem, and I don't think that anyone has any good answers for North Korea. I think most people who study the issue tend to agree that the only country that can really put significant pressure on North Korea is China, and I think China is not really willing to do it because they think that what might happen in the wake of destabilizing that government might be even worse, which is, God, that's hard to believe, but, but there you go, and they're right on their border. I mean, so that's a, that's a serious concern for China, but I don't know that we really have any good options in, in North Korea. Well, I, you know, I, I, I don't know that we do either, but the, I think what Tillerson had, had uh, said, the, the era of strategic patience uh, has, sort of, has sort of come and gone. I mean, the idea that uh, before, and I'm not going to necessarily just sell this short, but you know that that the the uh, un, uh, the, or the the Kim uh, regime was just so crazy that that eventually it was going to collapse of its own weight, uh, and that hasn't happened yet, uh, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen uh, without some some significant push uh, from from somewhere on the outside. Um, 
Right, but so I, guess, I, yeah, I think I, I mean I think saying, we've yeah. I think we've we've sort of exhausted uh, diplomatic tools to deal with North Korea. I, I don't think there's anything more that we can do to sanction them. Here, I think here's the that, well, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, uh, but that's it, that the hubris. doesn't seem to be working. But but right, I mean that that's the hubris of that kind of foreign policy that you know saying that well the United States certainly can do something we just need to figure out what that something is I don't think that's the case here I don't think that's been the case for a long long time it's it's you know I don't think we have another good option except for strategic patience uh, and so we're kind of stuck with that and people may not like that but I think that the only you mentioned the sanctions they're they're already sanctioned to death the only reason they managed to keep going is is thanks to China and so unless we can well, Exert pressure. Yeah, I mean, on I, China. I think I think the option would be hitting things like like launch sites, hitting things like uh, uh, nuclear uh, facilities to the extent we can. Uh, now, a lot of them are underground and bunkerized and so forth. But uh, I mean, those are the kind of steps that 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 I think would would be next, but, and that's sort of what uh, Trump has oh, hinted at. Boy, I think that would just be just horrifically bad because, of course, with that sort of thing, if you don't get everything, and you wouldn't, you open yourself up to all kinds of mass, massive problems, loss of life that could be in the millions. I just think, again, I—, I I sympathize with any president who has to deal with this, but I don't think the action is to just do something big and bold because, oh, what the heck, nothing else has worked. I just think it's a, it's a horrible situation and, and nothing's going to work until the Chinese decide they want to do something. Yeah, yeah, I think, well. What a kind of depressing note to, to end things on. I, I will say- uh, <laughs> I, You know, look, can I say one more thing about the Chinese? Oh, this, sure, this yeah, is yeah, just, yeah. And again, this is sort of apropos of nothing, but just sometimes to get the idea of the, that we're dealing with with a, a culture that is is really fundamentally different from from our own. There was a, a piece in the, the Weekend Wall Street Journal uh, about the Dalai Lama uh, and, and about how, and I, I didn't know this. Now, Mike, you are something of a, a Buddhist, scholar. I don't know if I'm going to scholar overstates it, but uh, the Dalai Lama uh, can choose where he will be reincarnated next. Uh, and the, the question is, would he choose somewhere outside of China? Right. Uh, and there, the Chinese apparently have, have laws, it's on the books, uh, about uh, who can be reincarnated uh, when and where. And you essentially cannot be reincarnated without the okay of the Chinese government. Of course not. Yeah. So I'm just, and again, it's just one of those those funny things. Um, uh, you know, you talk about sort of uh, mixing up uh, church and state. Um, the yeah. idea that that uh, the the government will pass a law having to make sure that you have to check with them first uh, before you pass on to your next uh, incarnation. Uh, again, it, it gives you a little bit of an inkling that that sometimes we're just we're talking with a a you know, fundamentally different uh, culture, fundamentally different mindset. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good point. And it's sometimes we we often make that mistake. I think you're right that the other person thinks essentially like us and sees the same world. They just have different strategic objectives and so forth. And sometimes that's just not the case at all. And and that can lead to an awful lot of problems. Yep. All right. You know, before we end today's show, I've got a special announcement and a reminder. Uh, now, okay. the special announcement has to do with Facebook, Twitter, and my decades in the making political worldview essay slash statement slash manifesto, I guess you could call it. So are, are you intrigued, Jay, at least a little bit? I am. I've, okay. I've been waiting for your manifesto well, you for know, quite a while. It's, it's been, like I said, decades in the making. Well, here's the deal. 
we're hoping to increase our presence on social media. And so we've been working to do a lot more on Facebook and Twitter. Now, because Jay is super busy all day, sticking it to the little guy on behalf of the man, and I'm sure doing a great <laughs> job of it, right, Jay? Yes, um, yes. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much our social media operation, though Jay does occasionally chime in. And when he does, he always lets everyone know that it's him. Otherwise, you can assume it's me. And I post some, I post conservative stuff too from National Review, Wall Street Journal, kinds of other places. So don't just assume if it's conservative, it can't be me. Uh, but if you haven't followed us yet on Twitter or Facebook, we're hoping you will. Ideally, right after you finish listening to the show today, we're super easy to find. Facebook.com slash Politics Guys page and at Politics Guys on Twitter. And following us on Facebook and Twitter and retweeting our stuff is really helpful to the show. Better yet, totally free. And here's where the worldview comes in. To give everyone a little added incentive, once we hit 1,000 Twitter followers, which is a fraction of our podcast audience, so I know you guys can do it. I'll right. How many how many Twitter followers does Trump have? Oh, uh, you know, yeah, he's got just millions and millions. You know, if we we probably can't shoot for Trump Trump levels, but you know, um, but here's the deal: if we get to a thousand, just a thousand. I'll finally, finally complete and post my political worldview, all the ideas, books, people, everything that kind of goes into how and why I think American politics works the way it does. I'll put it up on a prominent spot on the website for everyone to read, comment on, ask questions about coot, mock, whatever you want. Okay. It'll be up there. So all you need to do to make that happen is to follow us on Twitter. Again, we're at politics guys. Now, finally, the reminder sponsors are going to be essential to keeping the show going in the long run. And so we really do hope you'll check them out. Not only will you be getting some great deals from places that we like and trust, but you'll also be helping to ensure that the Politics Guys keeps on doing what we're doing and hopefully, you know, even more in the future, which we'd like to do. Now, this week's sponsor we already mentioned is Blue Apron. And again, you get your first three meals free with free shipping. Just go to blueapron.com slash TPG. And remember that TPG part, that's what gets you your free stuff and helps to support the show. So don't forget that. Again, the URL blueapron.com slash TPG. Thanks so much, guys, for your support. We really do appreciate it. Okay, that's it for this week's show. And if you've got any questions or comments for us, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com or on Facebook or Twitter. We'll be back with a new interview on Wednesday and our weekly news analysis and discussion show on Sunday. We hope you'll join us. <laughs>